Gentlemen, welcome yeah, a big, to Eat Sleep Suplex Retweet. Happy Valentine's Day, folks, and welcome to Eat Sleep Suplex Retweet. I am your host. My name is Chris Murray, and today on the International Day of Love, we're here to chat to you all about St. Valentine's Day Massacre. No, not the gang warfare between Bugs Moran and Al Capone in 1929, but the WWF In Your House pay-per-view from February 14th, 1999. Now, since this week's show falls on the day after Valentine's Day, we're better to take you and this week's review, then back to that fateful day, 23 years ago, to the final In Your House event, the last one, until NXT took over the name in June 2020. Now, just before I introduce today's panel, please do go and give us a follow on our socials so you can stay up to date every time we post some new shows. We're on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, and all the rest. Just search for Eat Sleep Suplex Re. Tweet. So joining me today, we have two guys who have nothing better to do on Valentine's Day than to sit down with me and talk about wrestling. Welcome, Andy Mitchell and Scott McLeod. Welcome, guys. Andy, how's it going, man? How's it going? Long time no see. How are you doing? It's great to spend a special day with yourself and Scott. <laughs> exactly. There's so much love in this room right now. So we're heading back to 1999. Were you watching wrestling at this time? Have you seen many events from 1999? Oh, I was in amongst this. This was my sort of, when I was introduced to wrestling, it was in amongst it as as much as any uh, young boy could be uh, looking at big sweaty men on screen, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and Scott's joining us as well. Scott, you've been through a little bit of this era on the retro reviews with Ross, and I know you're just generally a fan of this era as well. Uh, how much of 1999 have you gone back and watched? Well, that's what I say, you know, there's no place... I'd rather be on Valentine's Day. No people I'd rather be spending on Valentine's Day. And I'm not saying that so I don't cry. Uh, is it with, with you guys? Yeah, for me, I'd, I've been still and probably been too young to watch a lot of the stuff that you know was going on in wrestling. I'm probably too young to even understand what wrestling even was. So I'm a few years away from even watching wrestling. So a lot of this is me watching it back. I think it's maybe only the second ever time I've watched this pay-per-view back in full. So I'd heard about the big show debut and like the rock mankind match and all that's been a big part of that feud that went on in early 99 but it was only a couple of years ago that i went back and watched this pay-per-view in full and just 99 in general we talked about it a few times we talked about the higher power angle and everything and king of the ring 1999 is where WWE got way too into their own success they thought they could get away with just about everything and realized by the end of 99 maybe we should just rein it back a wee bit yeah and we're going to dive into a lot of what you've just said <laughs> over the course of this show so let's dive into it 1999 one of the hottest periods ever in wrestling history to set the scene i'm going to steal a trait from stephen wilson and tell you who was top of the charts in the uk it was maria by blondie at number one on the <laughs> singles chart since the start of 1999 they had passed the belt like the wwf as the offspring fat boy slim steps and chef from south park had all had a UK singles number one. And the album's chart, Fat by Slim, was on top there as well with the second album, You've Come a Long Way Baby. That's the brilliant one with Rockefeller Skank, Praise You, Right Here, Right Now. It's just a phenomenal album. 
over in the US. A young lady you might have heard of had just hit number one with her debut single, Baby One More Time. So she turned out to be all right, that Britney Spears. <laughs> and across the wrestling landscape, this is a, the, my favorite thing to look up. The month before, the great Muta has just beaten Scott Norton for the IWGP Heavyweight Championship in the January 4th show at the Tokyo Dome. It wasn't called that back then. It was called like Wrestling Universe or something daft like that. Yeah. Taz had just tapped out Shane Douglas to win the world title at ECW's Guilty as Charged. And in WCW, Hulk Hogan would be taking on Ric Flair next week for the WCW title at Super Brawl 9. So it's safe to say wrestling was hot right now. But that's not what we care about. What's going on in the WWF? Lots and lots of storylines all overlapping, as was the style at the time. We need to go back to the Royal Rumble, where Vince McMahon won the Rumble match by last eliminating Stone Cold Steve Austin, with, of course, the help from WWF champion The Rock. Now, this surely, surely led to Vince versus The Rock at WrestleMania, but no. Since then, The Rock has lost, won, and lost the WWF title to Mankind, and they will end their feud tonight at St. Valentine's Day Massacre in a last-man-standing match for all the marbles. It'll be the first last-man-standing match in WWF history. Over on Raw, Vince then declared himself no longer WrestleMania title shot elect, but much to his chagrin, WWF Commissioner Shawn Michaels immediately gives his title shot to Stone Cold. With Vince desperate to get that title match off of him, Austin challenges Vince to a match inside a steel cage with Austin's WrestleMania title shot now on the line. Now, Andy, are you following all this? What do you make of this build-up? The build-up's just... It's that sort of Jerry Springer-esque Vince Russell writing all over it where there's just so much happening. And again, this was back in the time where... The only way I was getting to see these pay-per-views was someone that I knew had bought the VHS. Mm-hmm. So it was kind of, you go into it, and I hadn't seen Royal Rumble, so you had to kind of learn what had happened. But when you actually learn, it's just an absolute shambles of just, they're just throwing everything at the wall to see what sticks. Scott, did you have to, like, Google anything before watching this pay-per-view, or did it fall together? I knew most of this stuff. I mean, it was only a couple of years ago that I remembered, like, how Austin really got into Mania, because also everybody knows about McMahon, you know, whether you'd agree with the decision not for McMahon to win the Royal Rumble in 1999, maybe one of the worst Rumble matches of all time. It's up mm-hmm. for debate, maybe. Mm-hmm. Shawn Michaels, one of the few actual effective things he did in time as commissioner, because when you look back on it, Shawn Michaels, most ineffective authority figure maybe in WWF history. Like in Kayfabe, Vince McMahon is a terrible businessman because, you know, he foregoes his title shot because he doesn't want to fight The Rock because The Rock is his champion. But in Kayfabe, he wants The Rock to main event WrestleMania, his biggest show of the year as champion, but he seemingly doesn't want him to fight anybody as champion, so he doesn't want a main event for his biggest show of the year, which makes little to no sense. And we look at the way things are going, if it wasn't for like how hot the Mankind feud with The Rock was, you'd almost think that they would be interested in maybe like just putting the belt on Austin, let Vince win the Rumble, and have the two main event WrestleMania, because easily... They could have picked that as a WrestleMania main event. We'd look back on it weirdly, but you know, at the '99, they'd still break all sorts of bloody records if they booked that. Cheap plug here for the something to wrestle with episode on St. Valentine's Day Massacre with Conrad's and uh, Bruce Pritchard. Of course, they talked for two hours on this pay per view. I didn't listen to all of it, but I listened to some of it. They speculated as to you know, Conrad asked. Bruce, was Vince in Austin ever considered for Mania? Bruce said no. Vince was always adamantly against wrestling Austin in a match. 
And I guess you can sort of see with the setup and everything they did in the match is why they did it St. Valentine's Day Massacre. But one last thing to tell you about before we dive into the pay-per-view itself, and that is probably one of the biggest nights in the history of Monday Night Raw. That is Saturday Night Raw, the go-home show before the pay-per-view on February 13th, 1999. This show was moved to Saturday as a result of a dog show, which used to move Raw every year around this time. And it was the highest attended crowd in the entire history of, of Raw. I, say, I was going to say Monday Night Raw, but it was actually on Saturday. 41,000 people crammed into the Sky Dome in Toronto. This is a record which still stands to this day, being one of the top 10 non-WrestleMania events in WWF slash E history. Basically, take out all the manias, and it still stands up there with all the Saudi shows, SummerSlam that they had in Wembley and stuff like that. This night was in the top 10. Bruce Pritchard said on that podcast that at the time, big arenas in North America were desperate for business because the baseball season was off. So all of their arenas were just sitting empty. So they approached the WWF and said, do you want to sell tickets to this? We'll basically put in a curtain. So however many tickets you sell, the arena will be will like still look nice. And sell tickets they did. They basically ran it until they could, you know, shift no more. And in the main event on this night on Raw, Stone Cold was made to run the gauntlet against the entire corporation, eventually getting beat down by Big Boss Man and allowing Vince to come in and get the win. This was the night we get that iconic shot of Vince screaming in Austin's face in the corner. Really nice moment. Anyway... Let's get into the pay-per-view itself. It kicks off with Heat, which was just a shambles. Vince gets on the mic and offers Austin the chance to forfeit the cage match, or otherwise Vince is coming to get him. Tess took on Viscera. Viscera hits a pile driver. Yes. On him. Yeah, but um, Big Boss Man still manages to get involved and results in a DQ. In the back, Billy Gunn claims he's going to be an effective referee tonight because he can count to three. Although he notes that all bribes are welcomed. Deborah gets on the mic and asks for tonight's tag title match to be a mixed tag match so that she can fight Ivory. Pointless because they don't do it. And in the main event, Tiger Ali Singh takes on Billy Gunn, which again ends in a no contest after interference from Val Venus and Ken Shamrock. The biggest thing that happens on Heat is that The Rock attacks Mick Foley, injuring his knee. And Vince comes out to cut another promo at the end of Heat, but it actually gets cut off because they run out of time. So Austin comes out to reply, and that's just the end of it. So, (laughs) pay-per-view official. I love that it's got the picture start countdown timer at the very opening of the pay-per-view, which should go go on to be used in the Big Show's Titantron in his early years. I wonder if they had this in place with the Big Show already. I just thought that was cool. Uh, We see highlights of the Austin-Vince feud set to some old-timey music, including numerous stunners. Austin also attacking Vince in the hospital before cutting to bits of Taker and the Brood, Mankind and the Rock, Triple H, China and Mark Henry all fighting. Austin guarantees he'll beat Vince in every corner of the cage, while Vince tells Austin the World Wrestling Federation for you will never be the same again. We cut to the pyro and the pyramid in Memphis for its first pay-per-view ever. Only wrestling pay-per-view, in fact, that would take place at this very strange venue. Michael Cole runs us down the card. It's Vince and Austin in a steel cage. The final chapter, the end of the feud. The pyramid is a legit pyramid-shaped arena in Memphis, which, (laughs) since losing its last sports team in 2004, is now a giant fishing shop. I'm not lying to you. Um... (laughs) As well as that, we've got Mankind and The Rock for the last man standing match. And as soon as I saw Memphis, I remembered that this was the King's hometown. 
And sure enough, Jerry gets the first chant of the night. There's 19,000 people crammed into the pyramid, which amazingly is still less than half of last night. Opening match, Goldust takes on the Blue Meanie. What's the storyline here? Blue Meanie is Blue Dust. Gold Dust stole Al Snow's head. Blue Dust stole it back. And that's it. <laughs> Gold Dust comes out with his classic full entrance, the camera, everything. It feels a little bit ahead of its time in 1999. I love that we got Gold Dust music twice for Blue Dust entrance as well. And Blue Dust even gets pyro. What is happening in 1999 in the WWF? My first note fuck off with the laser pointers. That's such a pure symbol of the era is people shining laser pens and wrestlers' faces. It happens all through the night. I have very little notes on this entire match, but the finish is Blue Dust sets up for what looks like a sexy figure four, but Goldust <laughs> retorts by lifting up his shorts and spanking him. At this point, I was like, I'm watching this and work. Am I about to get sacked here? <laughs> uh, Blue Dust calls for the mini salt, which misses. Goldust hits the curtain call, and we get the three count. Oh, the view as Goldust hikes up Blue Dust shorts from the front. Good God, it's burned into my retinas. <laughs> Who was the face in this match? I had no idea. I thought Goldust was healed, but people loved him. Uh, he even sets up for the Shattered Dreams, and the crowd go mental. Andy, what, what what was this? This was the opener of a WWF pay-per-view. Well, I don't have the WWE Network, so I had to find this on Daily Motion, which was uh, about 360 PI. Uh, <laughs> very, very pixelated. It was just a shit show of a match. The best thing about it was seeing Blue Mini doing a moonsault, and I sort of just was like half paying attention. I was like, oh, he's going up the top rope, and the next thing he just pulls off this moonsault, and I was like, Jesus Christ. I was like... You kind of just forget about that, but I think it was like backstage, they really liked Blue Meanie and wanted to really give him an angle or something like that. They really liked his stuff in ECW, as far as I remember correctly. But it was just a really nothing match. I've got some of the Dave Meltzer stars here because you know Gary's not here to do it, so I thought I might as well step in. <laughs> so he gave this one what minus one star. Well, yeah. do you know what? That's probably fully justified. Uh, Scott, what did you make of this? I don't have as many notes like you said on this, but I will go back to quickly the uh, the video package that you said. I found that very jarring, the old-timey black and white with the music, the Valentine's music, and then just coming into the actual full-colour version with uh, this pay-per-view theme, very grating. Nails on a chalkboard could be turned into music. It would be this theme song with lyrics that sound like an obscene phone call of heavy breathing down the phone. <laughs> music which they take the lyrics away from to use for Rebellion and later Luke Gallows' theme song. Oh, okay. uh, well for like two weeks but uh, well, this one it's a comedy match or at least it's supposed to be so it was never really meant to be anything more than what we got I know it down that uh, Mini goes for two moves figure four and the moonsault and fails to hit either of them I think like, it shows like the video packages of like him doing all the old school Goldust stuff but just in blue like giving blue flowers to Goldust or doing a version of the, the brood blood bath but with just blue paint on him yeah I think Goldust is a heel but people like seeing him beat up the Mini because the Mini is just a comedy character. Nobody loved seeing the Mini get beat up more than Jerry Lawler, who made sure to get right in early on about how much he hates Blue Mini because he's from ECW and everything and to the ECW, Jerry Lawler hates. Speaking of Jerry Lawler, the only other thing I took from this match is Michael Cole talks about a potential political career for Jerry Lawler. And there's a sign directly behind him that says Lawler for mayor. 
And I was like, what's this about? I had to go look it up. Sure enough, Jerry Lawler ran for mayor of Memphis in 1999. He was one of 15 candidates for the position and his campaign platforms were promises of better education, less traffic, less crime, more parks and lower taxes. Yeah, better education for uh, Jerry Lawler's new girlfriend to, you know, kind of... <laughs> so, so she could, uh, you know, get out and get with him at some point. <laughs> Of course, uh, he finished third in the election, which is relatively respectable if you think that there's normally two candidates that are favourites. He managed to garner 11% of the vote, which was better than, you know, the other 12 candidates. Right, so we get a promo from Heat. It was the one I told you about earlier, but this time we actually find out what Austin says. Austin will be fired if he strikes Vince before their match, which explains why Vince spits in Austin's face. And Austin says he's going to wipe the spit off with Vince McMahon's blood. I thought that was really good, really simple. I like that they got that in. Oh my goodness, here we go. Match number two, hardcore championship. First time ever on pay-per-view. It's Al Snow with Head taking on Bob Hawley. The build-up for this match is pointless. We get a recap. Road Dog was the champion yesterday on Raw, but he's now injured and this match is for the hardcore title. He's in the hospital after an unknown attack. In reality, according to Bruce Pritchard's podcast, Road Dog had checked himself into rehab and would be off TV until after WrestleMania. That wouldn't be true. Both guys here are members of the job squad. The commentators actually acknowledge Bob Holly's history, which I liked, saying he held the Intercontinental title for a cup of coffee. He held the tag titles for a cup of coffee and that this title will go a long way to erasing the image of Sparky Plug. Now, that's a really good line if they hadn't messed up the fact that Sparky Plug wasn't ever actually Intercontinental Champion. They just sort of messed mm-hmm. up. We get a kickoff with Holly smashing a bottle over Al Snow's head, and it makes an amazing noise. We go back a bit of back and forward with them spraying each other with fire extinguishers. I was thinking, are fire extinguishers in the WWF worked? Or is that not just really cold? I imagine, like, recently at the Royal Rumble when the, the WrestleMania sign was on fire, there were people who had been working with WWE for a long time thinking, how do these fire extinguishers actually work? We've never <laughs> used them for actual fires. They've only been used for these type of comedy matches. How does these things work? The guys brawl all the way out the building. It feels exactly like SmackDown 2 on the PlayStation. <laughs> Jerry Lawler quips, this thing could end up at Graceland. <laughs> You shouldn't do that when I'm watching shows because immediately I'm on Google Maps and I'm finding out how far away it is. They would have to brawl down the street for three hours as it's 10 miles away. (laughs) A producer with long black hair gets in the shot and has to scurry away. I initially thought it was Michael Hayes, but Michael Hayes didn't have black hair. A cameraman who obviously doesn't know how wrestling works audibly shouts in front of the live cam, they don't want them to go outside yet. And the ref has to run off and stop them from going too far outside like that. Holly beats up Al Snow with a parking sign as Jerry Lawler points out that a cop car is parked illegally next to the no parking sign. Uh, my favorite line of this match, Al Snow shouts at Holly, turn on me, will you? Even though quite blatantly on Raw, he was the one that turned on Hardcore Holly or Bob Holly, you should say. Al Snow shouts, I want you to meet my girlfriend. Her name is Barbie Wire and chokes Holly with some barbed wire. They fight all the way to the banks of the Mississippi River and Al Snow chucks him in. Thankfully, there's a convenient tire placed in case they can't grab onto anything to get out of the water. I can't stop thinking about how cold it must be. They say that it's 30 degrees, which I'm assuming is Fahrenheit. If you convert that, that's minus one degrees Celsius and they're cutting about in a river in their pants. 
Holly, I was wondering and waiting as to how this match was going to end. And of course, Holly wraps Al Snow in a chain link fence, much like uh, Short Circuit 2 when they do it to the bad guys. And somehow that is supposed to keep his shoulders down for the pin, even though one of Al Snow's arms is blatantly in the air. Holly becomes the fourth hardcore champion in history after Mick Foley, the inaugural champion, Big Boss Man and Road Dog. And Michael Cole says he has finally shed the label of Sparky Plug as Holly runs all the way from the Mississippi River back to the ring while Al Snow is just still wrapped in the chain link outside. I thought this was a really fun match, as ridiculous as it was. It's obviously difficult to use the word match. Scott, what what were your takeaways from this? Yeah, I I thought it was one of the better ones of the, the entire show, to be honest with you. Because they're talking about this being hardcore and everything like, oh, what, the, what we're going to see later on when we've got the last man standing match. They kept the the Rock Manga match mostly around the ringside area, so obviously they had to make had to make this difference. So they took it outside. They took advantage of the whole false getting anywhere thing. And they would do that a lot in '99. Like it wasn't this whole thing with the chain link fence as fun as that was. It wouldn't be the weirdest finish in '99. I believe Bossman pins Al Snow by putting up against a wall or something like that. But yeah, the whole thing. I think it's through winning the hardcore tail on the feuds with Al Snow that come after us where he officially becomes hardcore Holly, which made me laugh because he comes out still to a, basically the Sparky Plug music. All you hear is a as he's coming out. Yeah, he's no longer got the Sparky Plug, like no, no glorious mullet for Bob Holly tonight. And yeah, the whole thing about the IC title, apparently he's as much an IC champion as the Rockers were tag team champions. It's a similar situation. I think it was an action zone taping in 1995 he pinned Jeff Jarrett for the title but Jarrett's foot was on the rope and so there's footage of Holly walking away from the ring with the IC title and then at the next night of taping they basically went the title's vacant doesn't count we're gonna have a match for the vacant title and Jarrett wins so you look at the IC title it says Jarrett vacant Jarrett again sadly no no Bob Holly but he did up to that point did have the tie title reign for all of one night when he and uh, I believe one two three kid won the titles at Royal Rumble 95, and then lost on the very next night to the Smoking Guns. So this is his first proper reign of a, of a singles title for Bob Holly, and he'd become kind of his thing through 99. But I liked how it was basically perfectly suited to these guys. They were in the job squad, but I think it was a bit of time for them to go out on their own thing. It's also weird for, the, for they to say, oh, he's only the fourth hardcore champion, because this is a period, this is a year before it becomes a 24-7 thing. So seeing the hardcore title contested in actual matches that don't involve about 20 bloody run-ins is weird to see. When I was looking up sort of stuff about this pay-per-view, I saw someone say that WWF took like the hardcore aspect of ECW and made it into this kind of fun slapstick thing that you would get in these early hardcore title matches. And yeah, I, I agree with them. I think they, they took the sort of gruesomeness of ECW and made it more slapstick and managed to make a whole division out of it. Andy, did you take that away from this match? Did you enjoy it? Yeah, it was just it, I think it went on a little bit too long. It was like 10 minutes long. Again, as you said, it's got that fun slapstick stuff. And I remember being a kid and watching it, and it was just ridiculous. It kind of messes with the logic because in some matches where it's like if someone gets smacked with a steel chair, like a main event, or it's like one, two, three. So it's kind of like making out these hardcore wrestlers are more tougher than the, you know, the main eventers. But again, it's good that they, they, they keep it separate enough that you don't, you're not really thinking that way. The match itself, it's just, it's daft. You know, attitude error sort of just, let's go for a wonder. 
and it is cool to see the backstage stuff and everyone doing their jobs and that. I don't think you really see that much anymore because it's all like clean and stuff. But no, it was it was quite fun. And Dave Meltzer gave it one star. <laughs> so that's already two stars better than our opening match. We're going to be yeah. about, we're going to be about ten stars by the time we get to the main event. <laughs> match number. You'll be surprised. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, before we get to our next match, we get a really good promo featuring the Ministry of Darkness. Undertaker is there with the whole gang and he says that nine individual souls combine to make one ministry. This is the start of the main feud, essentially, that will take us through Mania and into the weeks after. That is the Undertaker and his gang taking on the corporation. I've tried to count the faces. I'm pretty sure that the nine individual souls he talks about are Undertaker, Viscera, Edge, Christian, Gangrel, Paul Bader, Midian, Farouk, and Bradshaw, we get that brilliant camera shot panning around the backs of all the wrestlers as they stand listening to Taker. And he says, our fate and our purpose in life begins tonight. I really enjoyed it. This is a, a fun thing, a fun time to tell you. I've dropped this in a couple of shows, but my first piece of wrestling I ever watched was Monday Night Raw. I don't know if it was actually Monday Night Raw. It could have been like, you know, they used to always do all those other shows where they would basically just repackage stuff like Action Zone, as we mentioned earlier. The first thing I ever remember in pro wrestling is when they unveiled Edge Christian and Gangrel as part of the ministry after the ministry beating up the brood earlier that night. I was like, that's my earliest wrestling memory. And now here it is. It's just so strange to go back and watch it. That leads us in nicely into match number three, the ministry's Midian taking on the corporation's big boss man. Big boss man comes out with his amazing 90s theme, which is just like low noises on a guitar. <laughs> They announced that he is the corporate team's head of security and he is the enforcer. Now, that would be good if Bossman was actually good. Bossman was the last man in the gauntlet match last night before Vince came in. Midian enters. He's carrying a glass jar full of formaldehyde with an eye in it because he's a soothsayer. I like this gimmick. That's good. And his shirt says, accept the purity of evil on the back. His gimmick is so different from the Godwins, like miles different from the Godwins. How good would it have been, right? I thought of this myself. And if anyone else has said, that, said this on the internet already, then fair enough. But how good would it have been if they also got the other Godwin and dressed him up like in the ministry, but then brought him out with an eye patch? As if <laughs> Midian was carrying his old pal's eye the whole time. Could have been a whole storyline. But anyway, uh, this match is two big horse wrestlers going at each other. You wouldn't really get this in the WWF today. Like the style of wrestlers and the style of wrestling is both really different. I like that Michael Cole just spends a bunch of time asking during the match, like, what is it that Undertaker's doing to get these wrestlers to follow him? It's just a good way of building up how much that the ministry is just this cult and nobody really knows what it is. Sadly, <laughs> very quickly into the match, the crowd just start chanting, boring, very, very loudly. And the boss man gets the boss man slam out of nowhere for the win. But no, there shall be no clean wins in this company because immediately after the entire ministry surround the ring, the lights go out and the undertaker is here. He does nothing on this show except the promo and this entrance, but at least we got the entrance. Michael Cole speaks about how undertaker has changed so much in recent weeks as the ministry drag boss man away and we cut to promo. So yes, a very quick match number three between two very slow guys. Andy, did you have much to take away from this? It was at least some good storylines. Dave uh, Meltzer gave it minus one star, so that's us, you know, back, back to the down. game. We've gone back down. 
But uh, on the Daily Motion video, it never had the full match. It only showed, showed the ending when the Ministry came in, so I, I never got the chance to actually see this. You and actually again, saved yourself from this. I match. did, yeah. I know it's that thing of it's like heel versus heel, and Bossman is like this nasty heel. I think actually they were talk about it a lot. Just that character is just you can't. He's not a tweener, and he never will be. And Midian's just crap. <laughs> You know, and it's just like, who do you root for? And I think they probably, it's a good way to start that storyline with the Ministry of Darkness. Because everyone's got a faction in the 90s, in the late 90s, so it's kind of good that they brought out the Ministry and made that a little bit more interesting. Scott, did you enjoy the promo before the match? And uh, what did you make of the match itself? Uh, the promo, well, was what it was. All I could think was the connotations of, like, them all huddled around this, like, basically this burning, like, cylinder, this big container that's on fire as if, them like goth hobos all gather in a fire try to warm themselves up in a cold feminine heat but <laughs> it was weird because you say yeah, it's heel v heel in terms of the, the factions because obviously you know a lot of people did see me like like the ministry you know not many in particular just the ministry in general and like michael cole even says like i can't get over you know the popularity that some people seem to have with the ministry like because goths were cool in the 90s but like <laughs> they're still heels you know they're kidnapping folk that's how you know, they got Midian and Viscera involved, and you know, they bloody just kidnapped them on, on Raw. And, but like the corp- going against the corporation were also heels, so who do you cheer for? And the crew just decided nobody, because they rightfully chanted boring, because basically compared to the last two matches we'd seen, and even though they didn't get high star ratings, they were at least entertaining for their own reasons, whereas this was just two guys bumping into each other repeatedly until Bossman had an actual move and got the win. When the Undertaker's gong went off, there was more noise made by the entire crowd than the entirety of the match preceding it, which basically goes to show you two do not matter. This match does not matter. This could have been on Raw or Heat or anything, and it would have been exactly the same. But yeah, Bossman's easily dislikable because people were chatting Bossman sucks. But they don't have anybody other than Undertaker who's, you know, the crowd are probably going to get behind enough to cheer them over Bossman. And Undertaker's not wrestling on a random pay-per-view like St. Valentine's Day Massacre. And yeah, they randomly kidnapped Bossman at the end. But sadly for Bossman, that wouldn't be the worst thing the, the ministry do to him. <laughs> yeah, true. More on that perhaps at the end of the show. We roll straight into match number four for the tag team championships. D'Lo Brown and Mark Henry with Ivory, who's just debuted on Raw last night. They're taking on the champions Owen Hart and Jeff Jarrett with Deborah. Now we get a bit of promo before the match. D'Lo says that they brought in Ivory to counteract Owen and Jarrett's secret weapon, Deborah. That makes pretty simple attitude era sense as to why a wrestler debuts all three wrestlers come out to mark henry's phenomenal sexual chocolate entrance and mark gives ivory a valentine's day gift it gets a bit weird as michael cole says he's childlike when it comes to women and um, it just made me feel a bit weird and i wanted the bit to go on it's very strange to hear jeff jarrett's music because i only know this music as deborah's music from smackdown 2 because of course he left you know, not very amicably. And then Deborah carried on using this music for a little while longer. It was good to finally see on the fourth match of the night some actual wrestling, thanks to all four of these guys, maybe Mark Henry the least, but all four of these guys being fairly solid workers. And we get some good tag team chemistry with Owen and Jarrett isolating D'Lo in one of the corners. The commentary mentioned that Jarrett is from Tennessee, but no one in the crowd cares. Cole goes through some of the teams that Owen and Jarrett have beaten and Lawler replies that that's because Owen isn't wrestling with shadows. 
thought that was a really nice reference. That is the name, of course, of Bret Hart's documentary, which documented those terrible final months of his time in the WWF with him getting booted out after the Montreal Screwjob. That came out two months before this pay-per-view on the 20th of December 1998. So obviously, the WWF are still pretty bitter about that. The finish comes around as Deborah and Ivory distract D'Lo. Owen hits Henry with the guitar. And despite the ring being littered with pieces of wood, the ref calls for the bell after Mark Henry taps to the figure four. Ivory then tries to rip the clothes off Deborah, but it doesn't really work. It's almost like Deborah's outfit wasn't worked properly. They need to get one of those Hulk Hogan t-shirts on Deborah that rip off if you like look at them too strongly. And yeah, it was a bit rubbish that our first kind of proper match of the night just ended up in a bit of a faff. Andy, were you, were you back on for this match? Did you get to see this one? I did, yeah. I just have one note. I just thought it was an awkward match with an awkward finish. And I know like Mark Henry becomes a much better wrestler. It took him about 20 years to become a much better wrestler. But at this point, he's just he doesn't know where he is. He's all over the ring. And then the finish, it's like Henry's facing Owen. And Owen comes in and has to then run around him to then hit him in the back. And it's just like... I just thought it was very flat. This got a one star from Dave Meltzer. And again, it's good to see Jeff and Owen, and you don't really get them as uh, in top sort of tag team stuff, maybe because they were tagging close to Owen's death, and that's probably just a part no one wants to. But they, they are a good tag team. They have good chemistry together. And, and D'Lo, again, he was he tries to make the match work, but I don't know. I thought, it was, again, I was, I was more looking at my phone than I was the, the match itself. I've just realized going by your numbers, we had minus one, one, minus one, one. So we've got an average of zero so far. Well, I'll I'll let you know that was the last minus was the big boss man one. So thank God for that. (laughs) Scott, you're a fan of some of these guys, especially the greatest TNA champion of all time, Jeff Jarrett. What what did you make of that? Oh, fuck off. (laughs) Fuck right off. And I like the, the gear that Jarrett was wearing because it reminds me of the one Jeff Jarrett action figure I had with that weird, like, shaving and haircut that he's got here. I love Ivory as well. I always thought it was weird that they paired her with D'Lo and Mark Henry for no real reason. D'Lo's promo, I felt so bad for him doing his promo because he's trying to, like, build up why Jarrett and that should be afraid of them going after the titles. But, like, Kevin Kelly and Mark Henry especially are just, like, staring at Ivory undressing her with their eyes. And Mark Henry... He's that man could not focus on the match. The blood was all somewhere else, I think, with him. And Jarrett and Owen as a tag team, like Andy said, are very like, untrained because probably they were came right up until the Owen's sad passing. And I think, you know, they're very forgotten in terms of the, the uh, attitude there as like, a heel tag team because they kind of came in to fill the spot of the Outlaws because they split the Outlaws up to try them as single stars. So they had to have these two guys kind of fit that spot of the top heel tag team. And they, I think they did their best with what they were given. There were moments during the paper where I remembered what we get at Mania 15 and it just infuriated me. This one especially because like you thought, okay, yeah, dumb finish to say with the, the obvious giant pieces of guitar all around the ring. I thought, okay, they've been screwed over, but maybe you know, finally Ivy will uh, will finally subdue Deborah at Mania, which will help D'Lo and Mark Henry get the win over Jarrett and, and Jeff at WrestleMania. That's where all storylines pay off. Nope. They decided, no, let's do a random battle on heat, which means Dilo will get a title shot, but we're not going to team you with your actual tag partner. We're going to team you with Test. Wacky, odd couples. How can they possibly coexist? Yeah, I mean, you touched on it a bit there, and we'll talk some more about it at the end, but the, 
you would think that with this being the final pay-per-view before WrestleMania, that a lot of the storylines and stuff would be set. No, almost nothing <laughs> that happens on this show actually results in something happening happening at WrestleMania. I guess the, the result of the main event sort of does, but that changes so much. Oh, God, it's just a little bit mad. But you know what? It's okay, because at least it's not as mad as the build-up to WrestleMania 2000. Good God, the less said about that, the better. Okay, we roll on now from match number four, and that means we're officially at the halfway point. We get a promo with Kevin Kelly talking to Mankind. Kelly mentions about Foley's knee injury from earlier, and I thought, right, I don't really like the way that Mankind speaks in his promo voice. I know it's a put-on voice, but I'm like, you're the WWF champion. Why do you sound like a small child? But, you know, we'll talk more about him a little bit later on. Match number five, over halfway now for the Intercontinental Championship. It's Val Venus taking on the champion Ken Shamrock with special guest referee Billy Gunn. Now, the feud is that Val Venus started hitting on Ken's sister, Ryan. And that's the feud. He promised Ryan that he wouldn't lay a hand on Val before their match which he makes up for by absolutely battering him with a steel chair on Raw. I like that. I love it when they do these rules and then they find ways to get out of them. Billy Gunn is out first. He's doing the Road Dog intro, but without Road Dog's bits, which are pre-recorded. It was very strange. Although I did think I was like, if anyone knows the words, it's going to be the guy that stood and watched Road Dog do it for like two years. Thankfully, he doesn't do the full ring intro with the ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, and just cuts straight to his line at the end, which saves everyone a bit of time. Val comes out with Ryan Shamrock. They're both dressed in white. He tells the crowd he's got a heart, H-E-A-R-T, heart on for you. Ken Shamrock feels a bit wasted in a feud with Val Venus because he really should be further up the card, in my opinion. And, you know, when I get to you guys, maybe you can tell me why he never ended up further up the card. For this match, the, the gimmick is Billy Gunn slow counts for no real reason. I thought maybe, I was trying to think about it in a really highbrow way. I thought maybe he was trying to get both wrestlers to wrestle longer so that if they had a potential rematch with him, they would be more tired out. But it's not going to be that nice, so it doesn't really make much of sense. We get lots of rest holds, lots of slow brawling. Billy's slow counts just make the match even worse. For the first time tonight, I actually started skipping ahead in this match. Sorry, all three wrestlers involved. Ken gets Val in an ankle lock, and Ryan helps Val get to the ropes. Ken then shoves Billy. He clocks him, and Val rolls him up for the title. Ah, of course, Ken isn't concerned about losing his Intercontinental title belt and instead runs after Billy Gunn to attack him. Billy Gunn then hits the ring to attack Val Venus, who's the only man left standing at the end. It doesn't matter, though, as Val Venus is the brand new Intercontinental Champion. Ugh, right. This was a drag. Uh, Andy, what, what can you tell me? Make it better somehow. Well, it's uh, a 1.25 stars from Big Old Dave. Oh, it's, uh, an it's an improvement. I, I totally forgot this was for the IC title. I, I didn't realize until I was like just looking at the the sort of Meltzer reviews and it was like, hold on a minute. So, oh, yeah, it was for the IC title. I noticed that Jerry mentioned while Val had Ken in a sort of stretch hold. He's like, I wonder if he ever puts Ryan in that position. Uh, I was like, good old Jerry with his dirty comments. One of the funniest things was just Ken Shamrock not realizing that he's basically how loud he can be when he's shouting, what the fuck, every, t- <laughs> every two minutes. So that's my thoughts on that. 
not only that, but I missed it. I missed it the time personally. But I read up afterwards that Ryan missed her spot to hit Ken. And so Ken <laughs> literally goes up to Ryan Chapman. He's like, slap me. And then she does it, thankfully. Scott, Andy touched on it a bit there. They had a big hard-on at this time for just having matches with special guest referees. And don't get me wrong, I used to love doing that when I was playing SmackDown 2 on the PlayStation. I don't think Billy Gunn... In fact, I think I'm going to go out there and say this. I think Billy Gunn really took away from this match, potentially having anything good about it. Honestly, I was so bored (laughs) watching this match. I just couldn't care less because the crowd clearly were more into Billy Gunn, the referee, than the two guys involved in the match. 15 minutes 53 this went by the way it was just far longer than it deserved this promo i think package showed why ken didn't go further because his only real promo that says basically that's my sister how dare you and saying blood is sick of water and all that crap again the idea of who's the face here because like michael cole the face commentator is going in on shamrock for being too overprotective like oh let your sister live her own life and everything like but val it's clearly taking advantage of her, putting her in one of his adult films as he shows in the promo package, just to get in Ken's head and you know manipulate him so he'll try to make a mistake and he can steal his IC title. But then again, Shamrock's still in the corporation, the biggest heel group in the company at this point. So like, why do I care about either of you? <laughs> like, you're, you're both horrible people, <laughs> clearly. Billy Gunn, yeah, like it's so predictable. You knew what was going to happen. And then Val winning the title... This was going to be the first of 11 title changes for the IC title in 1999. You know, people say the IC title doesn't matter nowadays. This was just being thrown around like, I don't know, a bowl of sweeties at a house party. I don't know. That's wild. 11. I didn't know that. I'm very sad to report on Val Venus. After this match, I went on Wikipedia and just thought, I wonder what Val Venus is up to now. Does he, does he still wrestle? Does he still do the towel gimmick? Well, let me tell you, Val Venus turned full J.K. Rowling on Twitter in 2020. He started making transphobic comments about Nyla Rose. He was sharing QAnon posts. That's that mental group of people over in the U.S. that may or may not be supported by Donald Trump. And then last of all, he got banned from Twitter for calling Joe Biden a pedophile. So maybe he's not quite as fun as we think he is. Uh, Yeah, less said about Val Venus in 2022 the better. Right, let's roll on to match number six. Ah, finally some juice, finally some big names. It's DX, Triple H and X-Pac taking on the corporation members, China and Kane. What? China? What is she doing on the corporation side? Well, we get a little bit of backstory, a little bit more of a promo package than we've got up to this point. Triple H saved China from the corporation during an attack on China as Triple H was in a match with The Rock. The corporation attacked China to force Triple H to say, I quit in his title match with The Rock. Triple H then goes back in the ring to save China and China turns on him and joins the corporation. She says on Raw that she did it for money as DX were doing nothing for her. And uh, yeah, she's probably not too wrong. Massive pop as Triple H and X-Pac come out for their intro and the full proper sexy DX music that every child who's currently probably about 20 or above knows all the words to. Triple H is trying to be threatening in his promo, but he's got like long swooshy hair with a plait at the back. 
It's like watching Galadriel from Lord of the Rings or something. <laughs> it's just very, very difficult for him to be menacing with this look. Thankfully, in about a month, he's going to get a little bit more menacing. He says to China, come out here and get your ass kicked, you jacked up bitch. I was just like, wow, that's your bird. That's literally your bird in real life when you were saying this. A sign in the crowd says, China is my father, which I really enjoyed. <laughs> China and Kane come out separately, which I really enjoyed because you got two different entrances. And Shane McMahon is also at ringside. Cole mentions that this is the first time in the history of the WWF that a woman will be involved in a match with men. I thought that was really cool. However, they immediately in the next sentence point out that China was in the Royal Rumble match. So it's not really the first match. It's kind of the second match. But anyway, that's that. And they show a replay of the corporate Rumble thing with Austin in which she took part in. And like you said, yeah, the Rumble. And plus, I'm pretty sure Sable did like an intergender match against Mark Meadow like the year prior. It's not quite as impressive here. <laughs> yeah, yeah. not It's not quite. But you know what? China, as we said on the China show, which I love doing, China, of course, was breaking all sorts of boundaries at this point. So fair play to her. I like this. Triple H started the match by taking off his jacket and he had a China t-shirt underneath, which he immediately rips off Hulk Hogan style. Really enjoyed that. They build up just how personal this match is for everyone involved. They try and make out that both X-Pac and Triple H are dying to get their hands on China because they're incensed that this woman could have left their brilliant group. Michael Cole calls X-Pac a plucky kid, even though he debuted in 1989, which is 10 years before this show. The crowd keep going mental for Triple H trying to hit China which feels a little bit dated, but then I realized that they're not cheating because it's a man battering a woman. No, they're not insane, but they're cheating because they're wanting China to get her comeuppance, which I feel like is a different thing and is good. We get a great camera angle on the Kane top rope clothesline, which always looks great. It's good that China in this match doesn't really look out of place at any point, even though it is a female wrestler in a ring with three male wrestlers. Just blazing a trail for what would come in wrestling for you know for the next 20 years the crowd really picked up for this match likewise michael cole jerry lawler shane they all felt much more animated on commentary and it really added to the whole thing x-pac and shane ran to the back as triple h takes out kane leaving hunter in the ring with china finally finally we're going to get our big moment where he gets his hands on her but kane comes in and he hits the choke slam on triple h and rolls China over for the cover and the three count. Yes, it was a dirty finish, but it's great for the record books that China won this match with three other men. Meltzer gave this a two and a half stars, significantly better than anything else on the show up to this point. Scott, all the way through watching this, I was just dying to ask you about it. I know you're the biggest Kane mark in the world. Thought he looked great in this match, but I actually thought all four looked great in this match. Yeah, it's weird. Because like, I remember earlier on when they called Bossman a bit of an enforcer for the corporation. Like, It's weird to call him the enforcer, even though he's bigger than people gave him credit for like size-wise. You've also got a UFC fighter and a six-foot, a near seven-foot-tall monster in a mask on your group as well. Because Kane was made to look like the enforcer because the, the promo package, which is all over the place, by the way, because there's multiple times where they do that classic joke in the attitude of Vega package where they have someone say a line and then it gets repeated and repeated. Like Jay said, if anyone's going <laughs> to institute a DX split, it's going to be me. It's going to be me. Black and white, it's going to be me. <laughs> and they did the words that didn't need to be repeated. Like Shane saying lovely when China low-blowed Triple H on a random episode of Raw while he's on commentary. 
and share on commentary is another thing because he's clearly, clearly inspiration for a young Pat McAfee somewhere <laughs> shouting and bawling every word so that's that people in the cheap seats can hear him. That's a great comparison. I really like that. Yeah, Pat is slightly more dialed in than Shane. Of course, Shane sounds like he's just done a line of coke before every <laughs> single match. Yeah, and then like basically the idea of also she's the new member of the corporation. They want to get their hands on her, but like it's a case of like okay, you can get your hands on China, but you also have to go through Kane. So Kane's positioned pretty well. They, they kind of tease that Kane has feelings for China, but that wouldn't go well. It wouldn't be the first time. Like, it wouldn't be the last time in '99 that Kane would lose a woman to a member of DX. <laughs> <laughs> Still hurts. Still hurts. But I quite like to. Yeah, I mean they went mental for anything that DX like did, not just on China, but just getting one over on Kane. He got Shane, you know, getting all hyped up. And also, I think about Shane, I might have mentioned, there was a line from him on commentary during the promo package for Val Venus and Ken Shamrock that I thought would really echo for Shane's life later on when Ryan Shamrock begs Ken Shamrock not to beat up Val Venus because she loves him. He goes, that's the worst line you can hear as a big brother. And I'm like, well, you would know about that later on, wouldn't you? Because <laughs> <laughs> rumours are to be believed with how he feels with Triple H and also in kayfabe with tests, but you know, that was you know, life imitating art there. But yeah, Triple H is hell, like you said, just watching like get damn it, Hunter, shave those sideburns. <laughs> yes, I thought that as well. Do you know what? Um this was a significant pickup from the first five matches. And do you know what? It's all upwards from here because match number seven is for the WWF Championship. And it's not any old match, as this is the last man standing match between The Rock and Champion Mankind. I really like the promo that we got before this. It was all about how this will be the end of their feud tonight. Now, in the Attitude Era, they didn't do a lot of that. They didn't ever let feuds end. It was always dragged out and dragged out. Of course, even Vince and Austin at this point has been dragging for 10 months, albeit it's the biggest feud in the history of the Attitude Era. So... We start out, we have two ambulances on standby ready for both men to be taken out tonight. Uh, I I really like that. It was just anticipating that no matter who the winner was, there was just going to be like the need for ambulances afterwards. The promo package takes us back to screw job number two at Survivor Series with The Rock defeating Mankind in the final of the Deadly Games tournament as The Rock turns heel and joins the corporation as their champion. At Rock Bottom, another of the In Your House pay-per-views, Mankind beats The Rock for the title, but he doesn't win it as The Rock didn't quite tap out or quit. He was, I don't know, you know, knocked out, I guess is the word. Stone Cold then helps Mankind win the title on Raw, putting butts in seats and just in one of the best Raw moments ever. And then at the Royal Rumble, The Rock uses about 27 chair shots and a recording of Mankind saying I quit, to win the belt back. It's not over though, because at halftime heat, Mankind pins The Rock during the halftime of the Super Bowl, thanks to a forklift truck. And tonight, we finish it for good after The Rock proposed a last man standing match. The Rock's music hits, and oh my God, he's still getting so many cheers, even though he's been healed for ages. Rock is still dressed in his full t-shirt and joggers combo. This, Scott, you need to help me out here. This is because he had an operation on his pecs and he wanted to get them covered up. Is that right? Yeah, I think supposedly he may have been taking the things he maybe shouldn't have been taking muscle-wise. And consequently, his pecs started to look less like pecs and more like man breasts, basically. So he had to have a surgery to get some material moved while he was recovering from that. Maybe there was a bit of a scar somewhere, I think. 
so he wanted to cover up. I think by the time he gets to WrestleMania, he's back in his full gear. But here, it just looks like he just arrived to the arena after going to the gym and didn't have the time to get changed. Yeah, Bruce Pritchard said on his podcast, without mentioning why he got the surgery, said that The Rock was in and out in one night after getting it. So um, it wasn't like any sort of big serious surgery he had. It was just obviously, you know, later resulted in this weird era we get of The Rock where he's wrestling in uh, a full t-shirt. Mankind comes out holding the belt and he has a tie with the WWF roster on it, including Ken Shamrock, Kane, and The Rock himself. That was that was absolutely excellent. Mankind starts the match by turning his back on The Rock in a throwback to the handcuff moment with The Rock putting them on him at the Royal Rumble. I'm watching this match with my other half, right? And she goes, do you think Mankind is the owner of that shop, Menkind? Scott, have you ever <laughs> been in that shop in uh, Sinionuk Centre in Glasgow? I've heard of it. I don't know if I've ever been in there. Just the, the, you know, those shops that sell pointless electronics and just mm. gadgets and nonsense. I got my mum uh, a wine glass from there that sticks to the table so you can't knock it over. I don't know why I'm giving them free promotion on their on our show. Next time anybody goes in, I go in and ask them, excuse me, sir, do you happen to have a tie that would have Ken Shamrock, Cade or The Rock on it? No. <laughs> how, about, how about some nice socks that would be preferable for drawing a weird funny face on it? That I can shove in a person's mouth, anything like that. <laughs> Almost immediately, uh, much like a lot of the matches we got tonight, the match heads for the outside. We get a big DDT to The Rock through a table that was up near the entranceway. I noticed that a TV immediately slides down the table and hits The Rock on the head. Hopefully no lasting damage there, but it wasn't going very fast when it hit him. Uh, Mother Half also points out that The Rock has an open packet of salt and vinegar lays land on him as well. Did you see this? <laughs> After the table shot, you see the monitor on him on one side and he's got an open crisp packet on the other side. If I was him, I'd just be like, <laughs> as I was lying conked out at this point. I think when he, when he goes to the table, I, I think somebody, one of the crew members, notices the TV, goes to grab it, but notices they're already coming down, so realizes he has to get out of the way before they land. And I think with The Rock, we joked about the reason he's wearing this gear. It kind of works for the matches he's been having with Mankind, this kind of street fight-esque you know, matches. And plus, Mankind doesn't really wear traditional wrestling gear for his matches, so it feels like they're kind of throwing away the idea, like, this isn't just a match. These are just fights between these guys. Yeah. And I like this match. There were some really brutal-looking spots that he obviously wouldn't want to take, but there are moments where you think, kind of thinking this is maybe not the most violent match of your feet, as that promo package is probably shown, mm-hmm. you know, Probably the Rumble was the peak of like violence with the with the chair shots. For me personally, my favorite match of theirs is the halftime heat one because you got Vince on Conte clearly waiting for the rock, but Kay was slipping back into old school commentary. Vince McMahon, oh god, what a maneuver! And you got the rock answering the phone and going, SmackDown Hotel. No, sorry, Vince, I can't come to the phone now. It's not full of the rocks, but. <laughs> Yeah, I really liked Halftime Heat. It was good as well. You know, they were 20 years ahead of their time with the Halftime Heat match because they filmed it in advance and cut it up like they would do with the cinematic matches of the pandemic era. And it looked brilliant. It was the highest rated segment that they had in years. So good on them for taking that gamble. And have they done it since? Have they done another Halftime Heat thing? I think they've actually done two. They did second Halftime Heat in 2000. They capitalized on the fact that they were still popular than they did the year four. But they did do a match. I think they did an exclusive interview with Steve Austin because obviously he was recovering from his neck surgery after getting written out of Survivor Series. Then they'd replay clips from that interview on Raw and SmackDown. So it didn't matter if you didn't tune in. And then they did the NXT halftime heat, which now I look back on it. Two people on the heel team are not there anymore. And one person on the face team isn't there anymore. Oh, God. 
Typical. Back in the ring and Mankind goes for the corporate elbow. Michael Cole calls it Mr. Elbow, which I liked, but it misses. And after beating up Mike Foley on the outside, The Rock sits at commentary and starts running down the match until Mankind flips over the table into him. This was The Rock's gimmick at the time, and it was a great way to get The Rock into funny segments whilst still being a heel. That guy from earlier with the long black hair, he's back. Turns out it's definitely not Michael Hayes. It's just some guy, but he's in the background of almost every shot. Foley hits the running elbow off the apron to the table, and then Foley goes to hit The Rock with the steel steps, but The Rock gets his feet up and Foley takes the shot instead. Rock starts attacking Mankind's leg with multiple chair shots, which is a brilliant strategy as you can't stand up if your leg doesn't work in a last man standing match. Mankind goes for the pulling pillow driver, but Rock reverses and Mankind goes crashing into both the announce table and the ring bell table. I actually really winced when I saw this. Mankind's head hits the announce table while his like ankles hit the ring bell table. It just looks absolutely brutal. But there's no time to think about that spot because we get an even worse one as Rock then launches the ring steps over the top rope onto Mankind, who's sitting on the outside. I thought, oh, they'll they'll hit it just next to him so that it just looks bad. But no, Foley takes this shot on his arm. And those were two of the most brutal Foley spots that I've seen. Rock gets him back in the ring for the corporate elbow and then starts singing Smackdown Hotel on the mic. <laughs> but Mick Foley locks in the mandible claw and Mankind drops Rock onto the chair with a DDT as the ref counts nine before Mankind then locks on Mr. Sokol once again. Rock reverses into the rock bottom as both men scramble up for the count of eight this time. And then we get double chair shots as both men are down again. And this time, the ref counts 10. The Fink announces it. This match is a draw. Fans chant bullshit. But I actually liked this ending. I knew this was coming. I knew that this was supposedly going to be the end of their feud. In my head, I was like, The Rock has to win the title back at some point as he's the champ by the time we hit Mania. But I thought this was a good way to round off this series of matches. They didn't repeat too much as of what they've previously done. We then get the pretty good promo footage as both men are loaded into ambulances on gurneys. Mankind doesn't even know what's happening. He says, are you guys carrying me? As he's been wheeled in to the ambulance. And uh, Dave Meltzer, of course, he gave this match a 3.75 star rating is very very good for the era and the best match of the night yeah best match of the night scott what did you make of this title match were you happy with the ending not really no because like there's the issue with the two like final matches because they basically guaranteed us that basically it would all be over all this will be settled or feud all be we all come to an end tonight and we both know that neither of them neither of the feuds came to an end i mean at least this one kind of ends the following night on raw but like, surely you pay all that money to watch the beer review, probably forcing your significant other to watch this with you on Valentine's Day, only to <laughs> not get the definitive conclusion, which we'd get on Raw. So to end it in a draw is a bold idea, I'll say. I like The Rock you know, basically just taking the piss out of mankind, singing Smackdown Hotel, obviously given it's a parody of an Elvis song, and Elvis from mostly Memphis. And then the fact that while he's singing, Mankind gets the man close to the gear and go <laughs> into the microphone. I think it's almost as good as like the month later against Austin where he's got the camera and turns around and Austin's there. And you can see the rocks view of Austin giving him a stunner while he's still holding the camera, which is just spectacular. But yeah, like, I think like, the idea of it being a draw 
They said that Mankind this morning had a dislocated kneecap, which goes to show that Dewey did not have a clear idea of how severe certain injuries are. Because like, <laughs> there's no way he'd be walking as he was if he had a dislocated kneecap that morning. You dafties. But it would also come to an end the following night on Raw. It was at a ladder match they'd have with the Big Show come out to choke some Mankind off the ladder to help The Rock. I don't know why you couldn't have just debuted him in this match as opposed to the main event. If he debuted here, help The Rock win. And then you can still have a rematch the following night to roll Mankind officially out of the main event, even though there was at one point a plan for him being the main event. It would have been a more effective way to debut Big Show and not make him look like a complete fud as he would <laughs> later on. I think maybe the reason they do the draw is that maybe, I don't know what, a lot can change in 24 hours, but I believe at one point they did want to do Austin, Rock, Mankind, Triple Threat. So maybe as early as St. Valentine's Day Massacre, maybe they still wanted to do it. So that's why they ended it in a draw, maybe Foley walking in as a champion. And in fact, that's how that match would have worked because I don't think Foley would have held his own going into that match without a belt. But if he goes in as champion and loses to either Austin or The Rock, you could actually make him lose to Austin. The whole storyline just continues. I think that would have worked all right. I've said on this show before, see if you do a triple threat match at any period in wrestling history, you need a wrestler who is good enough to go into the match without a belt and leave the match without a belt and that person has to basically carry the match for instance at Wrestlemania with Benoit, Triple H and Shawn Michaels, Shawn Michaels went in and out without a belt so it would have been good The Rock would have been more than capable of going into that match and just you know carrying it alongside Foley and Austin but yeah sadly that wasn't to be, I actually did think that the ending of you know with both men falling, The Rock's foot was quite clearly off the ground on the bottom rope. I thought that was going to factor into a storyline, but this was never brought up at any point in the next five weeks of Raw before WrestleMania. So it didn't matter. We're looking into it too much. Yeah, the thing about it fully gets to be in the main event this year's media, you wouldn't have to be shoehorned in the following year's media, which is one of the main issues of that WrestleMania like next year. And it's weird, like Rock twice has been in a position where he could have easily been in a triple threat match for the main event WrestleMania, where here... And like the idea of a lot of people wanted CM Punk to be inserted in the second match with Cena. And then the one time he was in a multi-man match at WrestleMania was the time he most definitely did not need to be in one, which <laughs> is when he was in that bloody four-way like the next year. So Rock's had a, a weird run of it with many main events. The good thing is, well, let's face it, I think in my head there's going to be another one. It's going to need to be probably in the next five years. But anyway, enough about them two, because it's time for our main event. Match number eight is a cage match. Stone Cold Steve Austin taking on Vince McMahon with Austin's number one contenders match for WrestleMania on the line. Scott, I was going to ask you about this, because I think we've spoken on the show before. Do you Did you ever, when you were younger, have this match on a videotape that was of like generally brutal matches? in the WWF at this point? This is one of the matches on that videotape? No, I remember having like compilation like videotapes. I don't think I had this one. I got it out the video shop and it was basically just a compilation of largely hardcore matches that they'd done up to this point and it had like Shawn Michaels match with Taker and The Cell, stuff like that. But I've tried for ages to find what the name of it was and I can't find it anywhere. So that was my only experience of anything about this pay-per-view until I watched it in full. Like, the other night but yes match number eight cage match we get the promo from the gauntlet the night before and we get not one but two important points from vince not one corporation member can interfere in this match or they would be fired on the spot and after tonight 
the World Wrestling Federation will never be the same again. Let's talk about this before we get into this. I've been wondering this all the way through watching this. Was this a deliberate throw to Chris Jericho? Was he using that line at this time? I wasn't sure. I don't think he would have, no. I don't think that was kind of the Jericho character in WCW at this point. Plus, he's kind of wrapping up at this point, so he's on his way in pretty soon, I think. It was just an odd line that Vince kept using that, of course, would become the catchphrase of Chris Jericho in his later wrestling career. But no, just pure coincidence, I think. The hype for this match felt huge. It felt Mm -hmm. like the culmination of years of back and forth between Austin and McMahon. This was the biggest feud of the Attitude Era, arguably. I mean, you could say The Rock versus Austin, but I think Austin versus Vince is the highlight of this whole period of wrestling. The crew are assembling the old-style cage, which needs all the sides put up individually. So Cole and Jerry Lawler do a pretty good job of filling while they're setting this up. Then all of a sudden, boom, glass smash, and he's here, the biggest draw of the entire Attitude Era, Stone Cold Steve Austin. The crowd drowns out every single word of the Fink as he tries his best to introduce Stone Cold. Austin climbs to the top of every corner of the cage as a sea of posters and flashbulbs surround him. There's basically no more iconic image of 90s wrestling. No chance in hell plays as the owner of the World Wrestling Federation, Vince McMahon, walks to the ring. As he's coming out, Austin climbs the cage again, begging Vince to get in the ring. Vince toys with Austin being chased around the outside and eventually running in. It made me think, if Vince gets in the ring and then immediately just climbs over the top, does that end the match? But no, this would be addressed later on, as Cole says, this match can't start until both guys are in the ring. Sure enough, Vince walks back out the door. (laughs) Ring the bell, ref. The match is over. Vince wins. But no, Austin is knocked off the side of the cage and actually feigns injury eventually luring in Vince so he can attack him. He throws him over the announce table, hitting him with every object in sight over the barricade, and then Austin stomps Vince in the front row. Back over the barricade, Austin throws Vince into the ring steps, and the crowd are just going mental. They head up the stairs into the crowd, and security are everywhere. They're trying to hold every fan back from jumping on them. I saw one lady that was just desperately trying to grab bits of Stone Cold as she was getting held back. Dark-haired hat guy from earlier is is all part of this dramash as well. It's like watching the Beatles or something. Michael Cole points out the match hasn't started yet. Both men aren't in the cage. Vince tries to climb into the ring as Austin throws him to the ground once again. This is great for Austin, by the way. Just in kayfabe, he knows that he gambled his title shot by taking this match with Vince. And, you know, that's a big deal for him. The main event with whoever is the champion is on the line here. But by actually never getting in the ring with Vince, he knows he can basically just batter him for free without fear of losing the match. I was like, there's no way they thought of that, but the storyline is good. Both men attack each other as they try and climb the cage, but Austin cracks Vince's face off the metal and Vince smashes off the cage and through the Spanish announce table. Oh my God, his neck really whips as he hits and you can tell it really, really hurt. A stretcher comes out to the ring to take away Vince, and I'm thinking, wait, hang on, you have used your ambulances for the night. Have you got a third one in there? Or is are the other ones back from taking Foley and Rock to the hospital already? And Fink gets in the ring to announce Austin as the winner, but Austin cuts him off, saying again, the match never started, so Austin can't be the winner. Scott, before we go into the rest of the details of this match, what did you think of that brutal fall from the side of the cage? Because it wasn't that far a fall, 
but Vince really smashes the table. Yeah, like if I had to eat the back of his his lower back hits off these like, old school like Spanish men's tables, and then it just crumbles over and he just falls over. So like he hits like his lower back right on the edge of it. Like it's like kind of like the old school like Shawn Michaels occasionally did it where he do a moonsault and like his stomach would make contact with just like the edge of it and the table would slowly break and he'd maybe get like two percent of the person he was probably diving onto. And like just you gotta appreciate the effort of Vince because he hits it and then lodges he'll basically trust falls himself backwards into the, the Spanish announce table. And the poor Spanish announcers didn't know what the fuck was coming towards them. <laughs> but yeah, I like the idea of Vince trying to basically get away from Austin and then Austin luring him in by feigning injury because you see the big smile on Vince's face when he's running around to the side of the cage and then Austin like, surprise, and then they go through the crowd. Somebody throws a full-on drink right across, right across the back of Austin oh, as they're climbing up. <laughs> uh, Jerry implies that maybe he's trying to lure him up to the, the stands, kind of like he did at the Royal Rumble where the corporation were waiting to ambush him. Also, there are a couple of cool lines in this. I don't know if the line for Mario Cole was during this whole scrimmage because this went on for a long time. The actual match itself, when it, when the bell eventually rings, is only like seven and a half minutes or so, which goes to show how much time they spent on the outside. Austin grabs a fan from the announce table, like an actual like physical like spin fan, and hits Vince with it. And said, my man's only fan, right into the face. And it's only fan as in an actual fan, not only fans. We don't need to see Vince starting up an only fans cage. <laughs> but the other great line was from JLaw before the match started. He said, if the word hate was across every grain of sand in the Sahara Desert, it still wouldn't compare to the amount of hate Vince McMahon has for Steve Austin. That line was brilliant. I really, really liked that. It was very, very visual. But yeah, Austin goes after Vince as he's been taken out in a gurney and eventually launches him into the cage. Finally, finally, Austin grabs Vince and they both get in and the match is underway. Austin goes to work. Big top rope elbow. Second top rope elbow. McMahon hasn't even moved since he got in the ring. Austin calls for the door, but Vince flips him the bird as he goes to walk away from the match. Austin can't handle this, so he gets back in the ring. Big Austin mud hole stomps in the corner, but Vince hits him with a low blow. This time, Vince goes to escape the cage, but Austin flips him over the top and back in. Austin goes for the escape, but he can't stop himself as he turns around to see Vince double birding him. We get this iconic shot of Vince just covered in blood. I've got it as my background as, as we're talking right now. Just another one of the most iconic images of the Attitude Era. As Austin climbs back in, Cole says he won't let McMahon have the final say. Because of course, if Austin wins this match and Vince is still standing in the ring, he can't take that. Vince gets up and finally we get the stunner built up to perfectly. It would be used way too often from pretty much 2000 onwards. Whereas in this match, we built up to it for about 15 minutes. As Austin is trash talking Vince right in his face, a knife appears from underneath <laughs> the mat. And what the hell... Paul White bursts through the mat and into the ring. He was last seen on WCW Monday Nitro on the 11th of January in a match with Kevin Nash, which had the stipulation that WCW wasn't big enough for two giants. Love it. He throws Austin off every single side of the cage and then picks him up and launches him at the side closest to the entrance. But this time, Austin hits the cage and the cage swings open with his momentum. Austin lands on the outside and just like that, with his feet on the floor, Austin is your winner and going to WrestleMania 15. What has just happened? 
The giant stands tall in the ring, glaring at Austin as he walks up the ramp. Austin doesn't have a mic on him, but he's just trash-talking the giant all the way up the ramp. Cole ends saying, the bottom line is, come WrestleMania, Vince McMahon's worst nightmare could come true. Austin could become World Wrestling Federation champion. Paul White helps Vince out of the ring, and we fade to black. Wow, this match was just something else. Austin McMahon got 2.75 stars from Dave Meltzer, but what did it get from Scott McLeod? I like to call this version a big show, cowardly lion big show because of that big mane of hair. Yeah, he's got, big, yeah. blonde, big blonde mane on him. <laughs> yeah, like the in-ring stuff. Like I remember when Finkel tries to announce Austin as the winner. Austin snatches the microphone away from him and the crowd pop for that. He's like, yeah, he's going to beat him up somewhere. And then just beats the shit out of Vince, yeah, the whole middle thing. Because Austin, know, like my man knows that he can't put up any defense against Austin. But he knows that he can't let Austin walk out of the cage because if he walks out of the cage, then Austin goes to me and that's not what McMahon wants. Now, I remember Big Show popping out in front of the cage. I didn't realise, yeah, like you said, he uses a knife to get out because just in the bottom right-hand corner of the screen, you see a wee knife just barely out of frame. Like, what the fuck is this? And then so strange, so strange. And then he pops up and then Michael Cole, that's Paul White, that's Paul White. <laughs> Which is so weird. If you're just naming down to as a giant, just hear me shouted, Paul. <laughs> <laughs> I remember I've listened to that same, uh, something to wrestle with that you've listened to about this pay-per-view. I listened to Age Go. I remember them saying it basically, Big Show was under there. They put him under there before they opened the door. So he was under there for a good three, maybe four hours at least. Oh my God. I was trying to think when he got into there, I was like, oh, was it during Undertaker's lights out moment? And then I thought, oh, I wonder if while the promo package was on, they did the lights out while they were putting the cage up. Oh, God, that was like three hours ago. <laughs> yeah, like, by the way, we mentioned he, there was a dark match before Heat started, if you, in case you wanted to know uh, too much. Scott Taylor and Brian Christopher beat the Hardy Boys, in case you wanted to know. That, two Heat matches, a full hour of Heat, and then, yeah, like two and a half hours of a pay-per-view and Big Show's under there with a wee portable television, apparently, to keep him company. And they gave him something to piss in in case he needed a toilet. So, yeah, he was under there, waiting for his queue. I don't know when his queue was meant to be. Thankfully, he didn't miss it, like Hornswoggle claims he did multiple times. And, yeah, this is one of the last times we even see this big cage as well. Because I think, as Bruce Richard says, yeah, Vince decided as soon as he took bumps into like, God damn, we got to get us after cage. Yeah, I mean, like, I remember them using... A blue version for the Edge versus Christian feud in, in, in like 2001, but I don't remember. In fact, I don't really remember ever seeing the black cage. I only remember seeing the blue one that was in like the yeah. Hulk Hogan, King Kong Bundy era. And then the, they used the same blue one for Edge and Christian. But yeah, this yeah, is they... like my only memory of this cage. Because they do use a version of this cage, but it's blue for like the Kennel from Hell match. They, have, they build the blue cage and then lower the cell around it. They use like this cage like a few more times. I want to say there's a there's a cage match between The Rock and Triple H at Rebellion '99. Maybe for that they had the black cage. Yeah. Because by the start of 2000 they brought in the silver like mesh cage that they would go on to use, which I think had a bit more give to because these are just proper metal bars that they're being thrown into. And poor Mike Kyoto, by the way, as soon as Austin gets thrown in the cage and it swings open, it takes that poor fucker's head off. Oh, I didn't notice that. Oh, poor guy. Yeah. He said, all oh, the referee's down, and I show a replay, and it just shows the way it swings open, and you just see Mike Yoda just laying on the floor, just like, <laughs> doesn't know where he is. He looks up just to eat enough to ring the bell. 
Did you think that the attack from Paul White was too short? I did think that as soon as I saw it, I was like, yeah. he should have battered him for another few minutes. Yeah, I think he could have battered him a few more minutes, yeah, because uh, it was weird the fact that Austin very easily nearly won the match twice. Like, So why didn't exactly Vince's master plan and kayfabe was Paul White to emerge from the ring? Because if he'd done it a few minutes later and Vince didn't flip Austin the bird, Paul White would have popped up from the cage like from under the ring, just to hear Austin's music thing, like, what happened? Where'd Austin go? <laughs> right, Andy, what did you make of the whole thing? What did you make of, you know, the last two matches in particular, as well as the full card? Well, as uh, as we've discussed on the show already, the, uh, nostalgia is sort of something that you look back on with rose-tinted glasses. And uh, I always had fond memories of this growing up, but looking back, it was like a two-match match card. The last two matches are the thing that make this memorable. It's peak attitude era nonsense in terms of you've got the violence between Mankind and The Rock just battering each other as much as they can. And then you've got Austin versus McMahon, where Austin's just battering McMahon. So, yeah, what can I say? Just it, it, it's, it's slow to begin with, and then it just packs off right at the end. What would you give the full card out of 10? give it a six six out of ten okay right a six from andy right over to scott what did you make of the whole pay-per-view obviously you know the latter stages were much better than the early stages but the early stages had the fun hardcore match so what do you make of the whole thing yeah like the whole thing like the latter stages also these are two big matches also they delivered a lot of in terms of like entertainment value attitude era and everything like that but again the fact knowing that they basically lie to you about that being the conclusion like because like Austin McMahon goes throughout 99, the whole corporate ministry, because we've done a whole other shows on that, so I'm not going to get into that. But there was stuff to enjoy in the undercar, like the hardcore title, the DX tag team match was good. If you like, you know, your comedy wrestling and don't care about stuff making sense, you'll probably love how short Ludus v. Goldust is. But then there are some other matches I just can't recommend, like that IC title match. So boring. As a preview, it's on. It's fine. No, I fear nothing else to watch, but it's the last pay-per-view on the way to WrestleMania. It does not do its job to the best of its ability, except for the payoff of Austin officially going to WrestleMania, which you can kind of tell was probably going to happen anyway. I didn't realise we were going back to out of 10. I thought we usually did these out of 5, but if I had to say, uh, I'd say maybe a 6 or several, maybe a 5, like a 5 or a 6 maybe, because uh, it's not the best pay-per-view of this era. And again, like I said, it's the final stop on the way to WrestleMania. It may as well have been like six months before WrestleMania, let alone five weeks because of how different everything is by the time you get to Mania 15. Yeah, for me, this pay-per-view was carried by the future Hall of Famers like Stone Cold, The Rock, Mankind, Triple H, Kane, I all thought put in a pretty good shift. Four of the first five matches were awful, just <laughs> terrible, plodding, pointless, boring Al Snow Hardcore Holly match was fun, but it was more of a gimmick match than a wrestling match. And then the last two matches were such a gulf apart from the rest of the card. Like Triple H X-Pac's match did a pretty good job of trying to like transfer from nonsense to main event. But uh, the last two matches were just in a world of their own. And I also thought the whole pay-per-view it was pretty hardcore, wasn't it? Like the hardcore title match plus all of the bits of the last man standing match and the cage match. Like there was lots of outside brawling. I thought this was more fitting of the title of an Extreme Rules pay-per-view than the actual current Extreme Rules product. So, uh, yeah, overall, I, I think I'm going to I'm going to go seven. 
So seven for me, six from Andy, and five from you gives it about an average of six, which I think is probably fair enough. Yeah, it does feel weird that they kind of packed it full of big gimmick matches like Hardcore Title, Last Man Down, and the Casey match to like back to back. But, you know, it's a show booked by Vince Russo, so, you know, I'm surprised there aren't more gimmick matches on it. Speaking of booking by Vince Russo, <laughs> as I mentioned earlier, we are in no way set for WrestleMania at the end of this pay-per-view. The next night on Raw, Shawn Michaels comes out and announces that the men who will be facing off for the WWF title at WrestleMania 15 will be Stone Cold Steve Austin and Mankind. However, Vince changes things up by saying Rock fights Mankind for the title that night. And of course, The Rock wins with the help of the big show, as Scott said earlier, who Vince then says will be special guest referee in the main event. Mankind would later beat Steve Austin on Raw to become the second ref at Mania, and he beat Austin with the help of Paul White. Very confusing. Bossman's match with Midian would lead to Bossman taking on The Undertaker at WrestleMania inside Hell in a Cell. No real story here. Vince just basically announced it about three weeks from the show, but this was all part of the ongoing Undertaker versus Corporation storyline, which would go on long past Mania. Shane McMahon would defeat X-Pac for the European title, setting up a rematch of those two at Mania as well. They also set up Hardcore Holly versus Al Snow versus Road Dog at WrestleMania for the Hardcore title. But two weeks before <laughs> Vince Russo happens, Road Dog ends up winning the Intercontinental title from Val Venus, and Billy Gunn ends up beating Hardcore Holly for the Hardcore title. Billy Gunn would end up defending the Hardcore title in a three-way at WrestleMania, and Road Dog would be in a four-way with Goldust, Ken Shamrock, and Val Venus. Oh my God. Eventually, WrestleMania happened, and you know the main event was great. But do you know what, Scott? I've never actually seen that WrestleMania outside of the main event. I don't think I, I think I've seen the main event and the Hell in a Cell match. Don't think I've really seen much else. I mean, I've seen the clip of Kane, Tim Stone, Pete Rose dressed as a chicken. Oh, I didn't realize that was that year. Yeah. When you really think about it, I know Kane has the whole thing with Triple H, but really, Kane, if anybody in the corporation, would be the one who made, made the most sense to put in the Hell in a Cell against Taker because he's the only person who could put on a serviceable match and has any sort of history with The Undertaker when you really think about it at that point. And then, yeah, but Vuso with the whole outlaws switching over, you know, Vuso went and did the Willy Wonka strategy, strike that, reverse it. <laughs> and like, bro, goes it to Billy Good, bro, I swear to God, the, the marks could think you're going to win the IC title, but swear if you're the hardcore champion now. So, yes, that is a wrap for St. Valentine's Day Massacre. I hope you've enjoyed the show. Big thanks to Andy and Scott for coming on and you know, enduring this with me. What were we doing next week? Well, Derek's going to be here to look back on some of wrestling's greatest villains. He's going to be joined by a whole panel. Quick fire, who would you put in? Who would be your nomination for wrestling's greatest villain? I mean, because we talked about him, you can't not say Vince McMahon. Of course. You know, both in kayfabe and for a lot of people in real life as well, when you really look at it. But also, I'd maybe slide Triple H in there as well. As a young man in the early 2000s, being my peak of watching wrestling, I hated Triple H with a burning passion. <laughs> I'm going to throw in the guy that organized the merger of AOL and Time Warner, who turned around <coughs> to Ted Turner and said, actually, we're not going to do wrestling anymore, and killed WCW. You, unnamed man, are wrestling's greatest villain. Anyway, that is us. Make sure and follow us over on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. Eat, sleep, suplex, retweet. And we'll see you next time for Wrestling's Greatest Villains. Goodbye. Well